Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I want to see more emotion brought back into these conversations because person to person, you're going to relate so much more when someone is authentic and real. And so I think we need to reach people on a more human level and not chuck numbers at them and expect them to sit up and listen. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Sophie Pavel. Sophie is a zoologist, author and environmental campaigner. She's known for sharing quirky stories about British wildlife and conservation, putting a fresh twist on contemporary natural history content that can otherwise feel dry and unengaging. In this episode, we talk about her work as a campaigner, activist and communicator, and why it's essential that we work harder to better communicate the realities of science and the natural world. We also talk about her new book, Forget Me Not, that takes Sophie on a low-carbon journey through Britain on the trail of 10 native species that are most affected by our changing climate. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Sophie Pavel. So, let's start at the start. Please, can you tell me who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you? Oh, hello. My name is Sophie Pavel. I am a, well, according to my bio, I'm a writer and science communicator. But I think that always feels very uncomfortable to say. And I still don't feel very comfortable saying it. I think, for me, I'm just a person who is curious and likes telling stories in a sort of silly, real way. Um, still very much fumbling around, finding my feet, not really sure what I want to do when I grow up. Um, trying to sort of have lots of different interests, whether it's running around and getting into trail running or doing more solo stuff or writing books or writing for the guardian or working in a conservation charity. So just enjoying being 28 is what I'm doing at the moment. (laughs) 
Ace. Cool. Well, there's lots to unpack, which is good. Um, so where does this all start? How do you go from being baby you to where you are now? Oh, um, well, baby me was actually an American in the Deep South. Not many people know that. Um, in Augusta, Georgia. My dad's American, our dad, my brother, uh, I have a brother. And both my parents were in the Navy. My dad was in the US Navy. My mum was in the Royal Navy. And we were both born in the Deep South and had cute little Southern drawls. And then um, when we were just above toddler age, um, my parents decided or had the opportunity to move back to the UK. My dad had done a year exchange as an officer in the UK and fell in love with Cornwall and Devon. And um, they were very in a very fortunate position to be able to look at a map and be like, where do we want to raise children? And Devon looks pretty good. And so they they brought us here. And so we moved from suburban, 100% humidity, uh, Georgia, to sweet little Limpston on the shores of the River X in East Devon. And our childhood went from pavements and sidewalks and shopping malls and air conditioning to quite literally, it sounds really kind of gaggy and um, romantic, but turning over stones and shells and make burying treasure and getting muddy and getting in the water and um bonding together as siblings and going up onto Dartmoor and not caring about the weather and so I think from a very very young age thanks to our parents who have done nothing but normalize the outdoors for us which is so important to just see it as normal and not glamorize it or make it anything special it's just a part of growing up and life um it's always been there and so I think that's where I guess all of this comes from this curiosity this energy to excite other people about it tell stories about it fight for its future fight for our place in it um has stemmed from a very blessed childhood of just experiencing it firsthand yeah and I mean the question I want to ask is and what impact do you think that's had on you but I guess the answer is obvious I think it's it's just um it, it's just everything. I I you know I'm not a naturalist. I don't know half the time what I'm looking at, but I know how it feels and I know how it makes me feel and I know I crave it and for me that's enough. And I think there's not enough said about the emotional aspect of time outside and physically pushing yourself and mentally challenging yourself and finding those limits and breaking them and building new ones. And so I think it's, it's, it's totally shaped me. And I feel very grateful to be able to reflect on that and to recognize that. Yeah. I don't, I so want to just go in deep. Screw it. I will. Do it. Do it. (laughs) So I think the whole curiosity element of your introduction is a massive one because I think often when we look at things like whether it's right to roam or biodiversity loss or whatever, you know, Mm. often people on the other side from where I sit, and I think it's very clear to the audience where I sit, and you can probably guess, um, that actually there's this kind of shifting baseline syndrome. Lots of people are content with what we have and our Mm. green bucolic land. How much has your curiosity showed you that it isn't perfect it could be better, it could go back to what it was. And how has that impacted the way you think and feel about Britain? 
Oh, juicy. Um, <laughs> I think uh, curiosity has made me explore and discover new places and revisit old places and form new relationships with those places as I've grown up. I think curiosity has naturally helped me access a more inquisitive, um, interrogating part of my brain and uh, to give me the confidence to ask questions as to, oh, well, last year <laughs> that field didn't have uh, planning permission for a housing development. And so why does it have that now? What decisions and choices have been put in place for that to be signed off and allowed when we're in a climate and biodiversity crisis. Um, I think it's helped just give me confidence. Curiosity is confidence, I think. And I naturally was a very unconfident, introverted child. Um, very creative, as I think a lot of introverts really are. Not really sure what to do with that. But I knew that I just felt free when I was outside. And so um, I think the repetitive nature of being curious about the outdoors helps you I think just naturally feel more protective of it. And in my lifetime, within 30 years, um, the UK has become one of the world's most nature depleted countries. Over more than one in seven now of our species are at risk of extinction. Um, we've lost 84% of topsoil in our country. Um, and we're losing it at a rate of two to three, two to three centimetres a year. And it takes around a century to form an inch of healthy topsoil. We're in a really, in, you know, soil, <laughs> no surprise, but it's the foundation of everything. And if we don't, <laughs> if we don't have healthy soil, then we're not going to be chatting on podcasts for very much longer um, in the future. We are going to be in a really, really difficult food security, life security situation. Um and to be able to very clearly remember a time growing up where I was curious but not concerned. Um, you know, probably didn't know. Uh, it, we know more now, so I'm, I'm much better informed, obviously. Um, but to remember a time where there were more insects, there was more green space, the sea was cleaner, the rivers were cleaner. It wasn't making doomy gloomy headlines every other day and people weren't talking about the environment they were just sort of in it um whether or not that was a, a damaging mindset I don't know but I think the just the fact that so much change has happened so quickly and it feels like it's slipping out of our control I think is it, it, it's scary it's, it's making me scared because I'm here thinking okay I'm doing lots of good climate action I work directly in conservation I do what I can for nature when I can within my means and I try and spread good messages and use my platform for positive change and hopeful action but there are times where I think well that's just me and I know of a handful of other people who are doing even better stuff and uh, are making even brave, braver more courageous choices but to what end if we're not being led down a green holistic restorative path by the people who have every power with to, to to make the changes that we need to see then I don't really know what the future holds but um what I do know is that I'm still more curious than ever 
and still driven by hope. And I think that that it's in many ways also a very exciting time for our environment and our landscapes and our communities because people are finding their voices finally. And I think it's very cool to see. And as a science communicator, technically, um, technically. How, <laughs> <Who knows? laughs> how, how do you feel about, you know, the job of uh, a science communicator, essentially, you know, communicating science, getting the message out there, raising awareness, for want of a better phrase, it's an overused phrase, but is that an easy task? Is that a bash your head against the wall task? And, and how can we improve that? Mm. Um, I think it's a really response I feel a huge amount of responsibility to be a science communicator because effectively the way I sort of interpret the word is, or, or the role is that you're a translator between academia and science and studies and the public and there has never been a more, more important time to have people who can look at a, a paper or, or a piece of data or a report and be like, okay, public, here's the top three things that you need to know, or this is the conclusion, or this is the approach that we need to take now in life as a result of this massive study. Or don't listen to this research. It was poorly, it was, it, it's not representative of the public, or it was a an unfair test or a poorly conducted study. So in both senses, you have a role to to help guide the public when the world is so noisy and you're being asked to do a million things and sign a million petitions and click this and subscribe to this and blah, blah, blah. I think we need, science communicators need to just be like a knife filleting through the noise and saying, here we go, here's some information, take it or leave it. But our role is to give you all the information and then still trust you as the reader, the watcher, the viewer to make an informed choice because it's so important if the public are going to take any interest in the environment adventure whatever they have to feel agency and they have to feel empowered that it's coming from them and I'm not doing my job doing my job effectively if I'm telling people what to do I can advise and I can sort of heavily hint that this might be a good idea based on some research but at the end of the day, it has to be a personal choice. Action for nature and the environment has to be a lifestyle and that has to be a very personal thing. Um, and so I think science communicators have such a role at the moment. And it's a really, again, very exciting time for the sector. Um, it is challenging because you can see some very excellent examples of science communication which have real impact. But you can also see some really poor examples of science communication and it, it really frustrates me when I see journalism. For example, the other day I saw a popular news outlet <laughs> um, <laughs> dismissing, you know, kind of moaning about the fact that we had a really good day of rain. This June in 2023, the first 11 days were the hottest ever recorded for this season. We are in the grips because of an El Nino weather phenomenon. Um of a marine heat wave where basically areas of the North Sea and around the British Isles are a whole five degrees Celsius hotter than they should be. That is literally life and death for so many species that are important to our coastlines. And yet we have a news outlet being like, oh, you know, 
um, it's a shame we've got a rainy day, but don't worry, the sun is on its way back. And it's like, hang on, <laughs> we're being told to stop running our taps and to be careful with our water usage because we're on the edge of a drought as we were last year. And yet the, the news is, is leading the public down a very dangerous path of having an uh, of of not being in touch with the seasons not um understanding how weather systems can affect the climate and how that's actually we, we desperately need rain and we should be celebrating because everything's so dry and so that's a really it, it, that is such an opportunity for a news outlet that reaches millions a day every hour to really take the lead on an environment or an environmentally driven narrative and help lead the public, the poor public, you know, the, how, how can we expect so much of them when they're being fed so much misinformation and, and, and difficult angles? So I think, um, yeah, I think that there's, there's few big news and media outlets that actually are doing a good job with helping assist the public's thinking on this. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting and broad area of conversation because, you know, part of me, I mean, I'm always questioning this, is the, is the game to, within our large echo chamber, continue to find out what the right way forward is? You know, if we're going to rewild, should we let it auto-regenerate mm. or should we plant key species? Like, that's an ongoing mm. conversation. On the other side, it's people who don't believe that climate change is happening or aren't interested do we try and, you know, bring them towards our cause? But, I mean, you're much better qualified to comment on this than me. How the hell do we do that? How the hell do we get these people to engage with the reality of things when they're being fed X, Y, Z by these enormous news outlets? Mm, it's an ongoing battle, for sure. I think um, certainly in terms of getting people who are who are like way behind on getting on board with this sort of stuff and in many ways we can't blame them because we've had some of those people have spent their entire lives disconnected to nature and so it's kind of understandable if sort of young environment young environmentalists come in and say hey please care about the environment you know do this 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 and this and don't use this and do do this of course they're not going to do that um I wouldn't, probably, if I was in my 60s and 70s and had lived a life and was fine. Um, but at Beaver Trust, which is, I work in the communications team for Beaver Trust, and so we're very much doing, uh, well, we're, we're doing beaver restoration of rivers. We're putting beavers in rivers and um, that sort of thing. Um, and the, the absolute priority in those situations is education. Because with this animal as an example, we haven't lived, nobody alive has lived in a landscape with beavers. They went, we killed them off 400 years ago. And so in those 400 years without beavers, the landscape has obviously changed beyond recognition. And we've developed assumptions as to how they live, what they eat, what they're actually going to do and the impacts they'll have. Um, and so we have to, go to the science, learn from other countries like Norway and Bavaria and North America where they have still had beavers and they've never gone extinct and look at how they've managed to learn to live alongside these very industrious ecosystem engineers whilst modernising as a human society. Um, 
And so education is is definitely a huge one, but I also think it's going back to that emotion because so much science communication and nature writing, for example, has either been so lyrical in, in some traditional nature writing, it's been so lyrical it's unrelatable for the average reader who perhaps finds reading difficult or a challenge or a slog. Um, or it can be so factual it can do the it can it can be an equal turnoff and be hard work. And I've certainly found that. Um, or you'll just end up feeling like, well, the world's, you know, rubbish. I'm going to go read some fantasy because it doesn't exist. And it's easier to read about the things that don't exist. Um, and so I want to see more emotion brought back into these conversations because person to person, you're going to relate so much more when someone is authentic and real and just a normal human being with flaws and failures and joy and sorrow and everything. And so I think we need to reach people on a more human level and not chuck numbers at them and expect them to sit up and listen or not, you know, on the other hand, not burst into tears and do things that are quite sort of shocking and rash because equally that can be quite distressing for people and a bit of a turn off as well. So I think there's a bit of a balance there somewhere. But as you say, it's it's an ongoing challenge and there's no easy answer. But I think a collaboration of these techniques maybe is what's needed. Yeah. And um, this is a sentence I have never said in 150 episodes, but let's oh. talk about let's talk about beavers. Um <laughs> I oh, happy to. <laughs> um well, no, because I just think, you know, I try not to bring too much of myself to this, but one of the things I've been disappearing down the whole of on Twitter is this conversation and seeing, you know, Therese Coffey saying what she's saying is terrifying me and disappointing me. Um, and I just, maybe you can help me. I can't get my head around the whole thing. I genuinely can't. I just sit there thinking, surely the only answer is to reintroduce a species like that. Like wolves are more complicated. I get that. Mm, mm-hmm. But why, when we got rid of these creatures 400 years ago, do we not want to bring them back? And mm. I wonder if actually maybe you could just give us context on what the issues are, what the plan is, why it's being opposed by some, and what the future looks like if we do bring them back. Yeah, sure. So um, beavers or the Eurasian beaver is not a small animal. It is the second largest rodent in the world. So we're talking about the size of a small Labrador. It's a big old thing. Um, And so, as I mentioned, these animals haven't been in our rivers for over 400 years. But when they were in our rivers, they were very much a keystone species, which means that it has a disproportionate level of importance to the health and resilience of that ecosystem relative to its size or its number. So like a salmon is also a keystone species where a bit like a cornerstone of a building in architecture, if you were to remove it, all the other things that have been so carefully built around it will be weakened and potentially collapse. So they really are a vital part of the river food chain, the river ecosystem, Beavers are vegan. They do not eat fish. Um, That's a myth that we often have to bust. Um, And they will just eat plants. And they will, just by the evolved way that they've learned to work in a river system, to dam, to raise the water level, to 
submerge and hide and conceal the entrance to their lodges where their babies are. They add water to an environment and where there is water, there is life. They encourage plant growth, amphibians, birds of prey. They help make spawning habitat for migratory fish, which are not doing well in the UK. They can be incredible um, sort of uh, biodiversity flourishes uh, in that sense, but then also by damming and slowing the flow of water, they can reduce the impacts of localised flooding, downstream flooding. They can retain water in enormous quantities to help us in periods of drought. Um, there's some evidence in the US to, to suggest that their wetlands are great stores of carbon, but studies in the UK are not up to date on that yet, so we can't be certain on that. Um, but, you know, logic points to that way for sure. Um, but then there is really compelling evidence as well in the US to show that beaver wetlands can be incredible natural fire breaks. So if we're looking at a world that is going to be in the grips of climate change, that the UK is going to start seeing more wildfires, more drought, more extreme weather, to have an animal that simply by being a beaver can help basically be like a shield of, or a, a chain mail around an environment to help protect it from these extremes, make land more productive, make farmland have a more life, which will create better soil, which will create better food. It really is a no-brainer. And it, and, it, and it amazes me that we debate for so long and there's so much bureaucracy, bureaucracy tied up around an animal that should be here and was here way before us all along. Um, however, being a big animal, beavers make themselves known very quickly. They fell trees, their dams can cause localised flooding. In England, where there's so much farmland everywhere and we've canalised rivers and we've taken down river buffers and we have farmland right up and grazing right up to the riverbank, there's not enough space for nature and people to work and not collide. Um, and so we do have problems and very rightfully so, land, some landowners are very concerned that areas of crop that's valuable are going to be flooded, that they don't have the resources or the support or the funding to help manage the impacts of beavers. Beavers can be very easily and effectively managed with simple things like tree guards, or you can paint special glue, it's basically glue and sand that dries clear on the bark of a tree to deter them from feeding. Um, you can lower the height of a dam, you can remove dams, you can trap and translocate beavers to different areas under a licence. Um, but at the moment in England, we don't have a centrally funded management framework from DEFRA and the government to support a wild release population of beavers. So all the beavers in England, bar two, officially recognised wild populations on the River Avon and the River Otter. All the beavers in England are only within licensed enclosures. So we have an amazing mammal and a keystone species and an ecosystem engineer that is persisting behind very expensive fencing. <laughs> um, and we can't expect them to have to deliver the ecosystem services we know that they can within those enclosures. And so at Beaver Trust, we are, I'm working with other ENGOs, working with DEFRA desperately on a wild release policy that will see these animals back in the landscape where they belong, but in a way that is managed, funded, supported, that 
fosters or that that helps landowners to um see a future alongside them and to feel supported and incentivized to make space for beavers um so it's it's a frustrating time because things are stagnating as you alluded to um much more than we hoped and it feels like uh, despite all the science and evidence uh, supporting this reintroduction that it's just taking too long um when beavers can have positive impacts within days of arriving on a site so um they keep us on our toes that's for sure and it's a really interesting fascinating time to be at this sort of forefront of conservation but i really feel like if we were successful in a wild release policy in England with beavers, that would really set us on a great path in conservation projects in the future. And I learned a lot then. That was great. Oh, good. Um, okay, good. Very quite long. Um, the lecture. That's brilliant. And then, so what you're saying essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, is the main barrier to entry here is agriculture farmers and the impact it'll have on them in a way uh, also i'm very keen for farmers and agriculture not be um blamed or villainized here because they totally are allies in this and we need them on side because they know the land like nobody else and yet they are often their caution is because they are tangled in subsidies and policies and economic difficulties that we just cannot understand and so again it's so easy for conservationists and environmentalists to waltz on in and pick holes in everything that farmers are doing and make them out to be the bad guys when actually we don't have a clue how hard life is for them in many ways and so yes there are there are some really amazing farmers who are totally on board with beavers and are doing everything they can to support their reintroduction and they're brilliant because they are inspiring other farmers who are a bit more cautious and we need them to sort of share experience lived experience of yes I had beavers they did this to my land however we managed it in this way and it's okay and it's manageable those are really powerful stories and case studies we also have pushback from the angling community and, and fisheries because they feel that beaver dams block fish passage um but actually again and learning from europe and stuff if rivers have more space to become more dynamic with braided channels and tributary tributaries and to have river buffers um there's space for everything there's space for fish there's space for beavers if there is a beaver dam but there's a braided channel on the other side the fish can swim around but remember Fish like salmon were born to leap, Salmo Salar, the Latin name means the leaper. So they can leap over beaver dams and they do so in Norway and they evolve, they co-evolve together as members of the river. And so if you look again in Scandinavia, there are healthy populations of beavers, healthy populations of fish, and they kind of keep each other in check. Beavers won't proliferate like rabbits, which again is another concern. They don't breed like that. Um, and so again it's it's looking at the bigger picture of the river and if the river is healthy beavers and fish should be able to coexist so it's managing those expectations as well 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And are our rivers healthy enough to reintroduce the beaver? Or is part of the idea that the beaver would support, you know, the regeneration of almost dead or dying rivers? I think the latter. So there's not much research, but again, it's something that I think I'm certainly curious about. And um, we recently had a big beaver conference in, as if that's a thing, so cool, in April. <laughs> um, and one of the questions was, because um, obviously the rivers are not in a good way in England at the moment, 100% are still failing water quality tests. And so what impact is that actually having on the beaver? However, there is other research showing that um beaver dams can actually improve water quality and kind of act as some sort of filter so the water coming into a dam is cleaner after the dam and so what's going on in there to kind of filter out all those sort of pollutants and chemicals and stuff so um you know if, if a beaver is in a river the river is guaranteed healthier there's no doubt about it it's easy to see i've i've been at the the end i've been at the top of a river with beavers and I've been at the bottom and the water at the top was muddier and the water at the bottom was crystal clear. And yes, that's anecdotal and I don't have data, but just seeing it with my own eyes, I was like, well, that makes sense. <laughs> like it's so simple. Yeah. And how, how much do you think we were wildly away from like, you know, adventure, wingsuiting and being brave and all of that. We'll but come back to wingsuiting. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll do, we'll tick that at the end. <laughs> um, how much do you think if we were to succeed with some form of reintroduction, it would act as kind of like a cascade initiative to then see us go on to talk about, I mean, wolves is the silly obvious example that's at the other end of the spectrum, but is this a stage mm. in a process? Yeah, totally. I think that if we can get if we can get policy to secure proper beaver reintroduction, then I don't see why we couldn't be more ambitious and say, well, let's look at, let's look at predators. Let's look at other keystone species that should be here and were here, by the way. Um, because then, you know, if, if we've overcome that, then I'd like to think that we've primed those in charge to you know it's not going to be like if we restore the beaver and we get policy that's it no more reintroductions that is literally the start of what's hopefully going to be a rather odd slightly engineered process of restoring the landscape but if it restores the landscape we shouldn't really be scrutinizing too much about the process by which we're doing it I think I think we should just be cracking on and stop dithering and um do whatever we can in the most sort of science-led and informed way with animal welfare animal welfare right at the top of the list of priorities um we should just be uh looking to 
plug the gaps that we created with the species that should be there. But I think that's the burning question, isn't it? And, you know, disagree with me. If you do, you're very, very welcome to. Um, and you're welcome to school me. But um, <laughs> it, it feels to me like, you know, for you or I, animal welfare might be at the top of the list. But I think for lots of people who are disconnected from nature mm-hmm. and don't see it in the way that we do, um, for various reasons, it's the impact on humans that I think is the thing that's going to win this argument, isn't it? Oh, and yeah, totally. Is, in this case, is that, you know, the quality of our rivers, which means that our drinking water is better or mm-hmm. less flooding, et cetera. And, and how do we communicate that message to a wider audience? Yeah, it, you're completely right. I think um, we, can bash, we can bang on about animal welfare as much as we like. However, humans are innately selfish and we constantly look for ourselves in everything. And so, you know, everyone might be like, oh, animal welfare. Yes, I love animals, blah, blah, blah. What's in it for me? where what will affect me um and I do this all the time you know like how does this relate to me um so you're you're completely right it's it's again a science communication exercise with okay well people aren't going to care about how the animals affected but what if I told you that this meant you wouldn't have dinner or what if I told you that this meant you wouldn't be able to shower and clean water for a month or that you'd have to ration your water to 10 litres a day. Because at the moment, the average household uses like 150. Um, that's not out of the realms of possibility at the rate that we're going. Um, and so, like, what if Sainsbury's, you got to the till and they were like, oh, no, sorry, we've got to limit you to this much of food. So please put those back. Again, that could happen. We've got 60 harvests left, according to Philip Limbury, who is like the voice of authority on all things factory farming and industrial farming and harvests and everything with his book that's aptly called 60 Harvests Left. Um, And so we have to, you know, if the only way for people to listen is to put a, a, a numerical value on it, which I hate in terms of this is how valuable it is and to make nature a commodity that we will ultimately continue to exploit and tempt exploitation still if we add a number onto it. But if that's going to make people listen, then we've got to do it. But if if you have to translate it in a way that becomes a survival thing of you will not eat, you will not drink, you will stay disgusting and not shower then maybe we have to do that. But I don't know. It's um, it, it may get to that point, which would be a shame because then where's the fun in that? You want to excite people about taking action for nature with kind of disarming them with, with joy and fun and then hit them with the hard stuff when they're on board. So, yeah, I, I hope we don't get to that stage. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it's it's so obvious that, you know, you get so much out of being an advocate for nature and challenging the status quo and looking at, you know, what the future holds for Britain, biodiversity, etc. But how much are you able to enjoy the landscape now that you know what it's really like, you know, looking at it through the lens that you have? Are you Mm. able to enjoy the outdoors in the way that you could when you were turning shells over as a kid? Um, Really good question. I think... Um, yes and no. 
so a beach that I grew up playing on and playing in and mucking around on, Budley Salston, um, in East Devon, has had polluted water for a while. And it used to, as in, even like in the last couple of years, it used to have just crystal clear water. It's Pebbly Beach, Jurassic Coast. And yet when I go on the Surface Gate Sewage app to look at updates, every time I've looked in the last few weeks, it's had a red X or a spanner showing that there's work being done. So AKA that probably shouldn't bathe in there today. And when I'm, I swam in it the other week and I was like, the water stinks. And like, I was with my brother and my boyfriend and we were trying to like properly swim, um, you know, like swim boys. And we had to go way out beyond the swim boys to get past this brown line of God knows what. Um, I felt really on edge and I felt really disgusted. And then I felt really angry because I knew, thanks to campaigners like Hugo Tag Home and all the Surface Against Sewage lot, and everyone really on Twitter, that we're in a, a, our adventures are being impact, a a changing. And we're seeing stuff, I guess, again, like I talked about from the beginning of the regularity of being outside, you notice change more quickly. Just like farmers, that's why we need farmers on side, because they notice change because they're outside on their land every minute of every day. And so they have such a wealth of longitudinal information that we need to draw upon. Um, and then on Dartmoor now, which is sort of hallowed ground for me (laughs) and many people, obviously, um, it should be forested. And up until a few years ago, I had no idea that it should largely be covered in Atlantic temperate rainforest. And it was only when doing some research and listening to people like Guy Shrubsole talk about, hang on, this is what it should look like. And actually it's quite deserted ecologically speaking that when I'm walking on it now and I'm hearing the crunch of grass under my feet and I'm not feeling a peat bog and I'm not hearing insects and I'm not hearing birds I'm like well god like yes it's a kind of wilderness but it's also a desert um and it and it doesn't feel quite right so I think yeah I think having maybe just because I'm older and I'm more interested in I guess, swatting up and I have to for work anyway. Um, Sometimes it is ruining the outdoors for me because I'm like, well, there's no reason. Like, why is it like this? Because it, it didn't have to be. It wasn't like some asteroid crashed into earth and caused a climatic shift within our lifetime that has made this change. It's literally because we have made choices. Um, But again, as I always like to look on the hopeful side, there are there's so we have all the information and all the tools at our disposal to turn that around and to make sure that our children and children's children aren't as eco-anxious. And I think that yeah. is a huge responsibility of ours and a baton that we should take up and grab with both hands. Absolutely. I think that eco-anxious word is a big one. And I, you know, I'm definitely, I was about to say guilty. I'm not guilty. I just feel subjected to that level of anxiety all the time. The constant Mm. worry and fear of what it's, what it's, what it's really like and what it could be and why Mm. it isn't. And I don't know if, you know, you know much about this. I don't and would love to, you know, I think unless it's changed, we're ranked 189th globally 
in terms of biodiversity. Mm-hmm. How did we get there, you know, compared to mm. others? Why are we the way we are? I don't know. I really don't. Because it's funny, when you go to Europe, you instantly are like, well, there's more wildlife. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, I, I, I don't know what it is about our culture here in Britain. Because on the one hand, we profess to be a nation of wildlife lovers and of outdoorsy, gung-ho adventurers. And yet in the same breath, we have leaders and a government who just seem like they haven't got a clue. They're all, or they do have a clue, but it's easier for them to just carry on as usual. But whether they know it or not, their business as usual is not only making them look ridiculous but it's completely messing up the country and the economy. And I don't know why uh, uh, why we're ranked so low, but then when you see who's in charge and you see the decisions being made and the funding decisions and the allocations of this, that and the other and who's chosen to lead which department, it's like, well, no, no wonder. We've, we haven't got the right people. We haven't got qualified people who have even the most basic understanding of ecology. And ecology is simply the study of how the world, how nature works and fits together and how we interact with it, how species interact with the natural world. And I think if that was prioritised in education, we would see things a lot more differently. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, I find it embarrassing and so disappointing when we've got some of the best academic institutions in the world doing world-class research on climate change, adaptation, climate resilience, green finance, and yet it feels like it's not being heard by the right ears. Yeah, and in some sense, I always try to like flip it round and say like, okay, so why is this happening? And, you know, obviously, you can guess my politics, but I, I try to not just assume they're all corrupted loons because it helps mm. me sleep at night <laughs> if I assume they're not. But like, yeah. yeah, the NHS is on its knees. One in three kids in the UK are hungry. Putin's marching west, etc. I get that they've got other stuff to deal with. I just mm. can't understand how... The, the the kind of rock solid science of if we do not make significant changes to the way we interact with nature yeah. and land, you know, it's all going to go wrong, more wrong, mm. you know, mm. forget tomatoes on the shelves, forget, you know, leisurely baths, yeah. like you say, like it's gone. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know the answer, but Hey, you know, there's an election next year. Let's see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think, again, you know, when people are like, what can I do? My main answer is use your right as a voter. Exercise your authority as a voter and bloody go out and vote. Because we can use all the reusable coffee cups that we like and we can buy local and listen to the right podcasts and read read books and whatever, But that is our one opportunity to have access to a decision. And writing to your MP can work. You can attend 
MP surgeries and go and speak to them in person. Sometimes that's even more frustrating because you feel like you just get the party line. They're like slightly robotic. Um, but you feel good having done that because I think the main thing is that you've, you've it, it's brave to, to take action and kind of fight for what you believe in. Um, and, you know, if we're talking adventure and stuff, those sort of qualities that drive you and sustain you through endurance challenges when you're freezing and exhausted and drained and starving and wondering why the hell you're you're doing this. It's those sorts of mentalities that I think you need to call upon with bigger issues like this. And do you genuinely feel hopeful? I should say I do before I sound like really pessimistic, you know, but... Um, I do, yeah, I think I do. Because, and I've spoken to some people recently who have very honestly said that they're not hopeful. And I've really, really respected that because that is a very difficult thing to admit. Whether I'm almost slightly lying to myself, I don't know, but I'm, I've always been an optimist. And I couldn't be doing the job that I'm doing if I didn't see that there is light and significant change is coming and it could be amazing. Um, but it's, I think it's trying to equip yourself in your little life as best as you can to help navigate inevitable challenges as well. And I think finding hope in the small things too, and choosing almost curating where you get your news from in a way. So you don't get like fatigue from gloom news outlets don't do enough to remind us of all the good stuff that's happening they're very quick to say this species is on its knees or oh there might be like a beaver was reintroduced in nottingham for the first time in 400 years that's happy but also there are so many other things and so many students and phd students who are doing incredible projects to find answers and and champion solutions to big problems and so to, it's really important to seek out those positive stories to remind yourself that actually there is good work being done quietly but consistently and um that's that's fuel i think yeah and i also think that there is actually still so much to go out and enjoy and you know i'll try not to turn this 100%. episode into a into a trespass episode but <laughs> we've got a lot left you know actually if you look yeah. at percentages sure not so much mm -hmm. but i i don't live in you know one of the big wild places in britain but i can find you know wild yeah. wild space here and i think mm -hmm. you know big disclaimer i have not been asked to do this this is not the purpose of this podcast but i think your book is a perfect example of like you know stepping out of the you know richmond park or even the peak district somewhere i lived for a long time and actually like going out to look for what's left and experiencing mm. it and enjoying it and i wonder if you could give us some context on what inspired you to write it what it is and what you did yeah um thanks i think um i mentioned that i found i find nature books that are a bit factually heavy very hard work i'm not a fast reader and I find it difficult to concentrate on text for long periods of time. And I think social media has a lot to answer for, for that, um, <laughs> making me very demanding. Um, 
But the I I guess the inspiration for it came in that I wanted to write something for people who normally wouldn't who perhaps wouldn't normally pick up a nature book, but who were curious. And that's that's all they had. They didn't have knowledge, they didn't have Latin names, they didn't have a degree, they didn't have like a volunteer position at their local wildlife club. They just had a curiosity. They were just like, oh, okay, yeah, let's have let's give it a go. And so I wanted people to, I guess, be reminded that when you're outside and everything, there's no, you know, nature doesn't judge you. It doesn't care where you come from. doesn't care what you look like. It's just there. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it, it literally couldn't care less about you. And I think there's something really humbling in that. And so I wanted it to be not about, it is, it is of course about trying to find these 10 endangered species who are on the front lines of climate change. And I selfishly wanted to find them because I didn't know much about them myself because it was really important to me that I'd be learning alongside the reader. We'd be learning together. And so I'd be surprised at the same time as the reader and that sort of thing. Um, and our knowledge would be supplemented by these amazing scientists that we meet along the way. But I just wanted it to be about the thrill of the chase and about the journey and about how it makes you feel and what you can learn if you just allow yourself to look and spend a little bit of time. Um, and to remind ourselves of, as you say, we've got so much left to lose and it's amazing. And the British Isles are unique in the whole world because I don't know of many other countries where you can be in completely contrasting environments within a day, a long day, but still within a day. Um, you know, you can be right up in the Cairngorms in the snow in the evening and then get the sleeper and be at rush hour London by 7am. And you can be on incredible tropical looking islands and then you can be on the uplands looking for a bird of prey. You can be in a city and then you can be in the most amazing temperate rainforest woodland. It's just amazing and I think we don't celebrate that enough. And to be able to explore all of that largely by public transport, and then if you're able to, to get on your bike or put your trainers on and really physically feel the landscape by pushing yourself up hills, testing your endurance, just exploring and just doing what our bodies want to, to do um, is, 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 is game changing, I think. And I think adventures and I felt a responsibility being a lover of the outdoors and I guess someone with a science background, I felt a responsibility to really communicate that joy um, because you protect what you love. And I thought if I remind people of how lovable this country is and its species, maybe they might fancy protecting it a bit more. I don't know. <laughs> here, here. Well, um. What did you learn? I recognise there's a whole book to tell us the answer, but <laughs> what did you learn? Oh, so many things. I learned that there is joy in failure. 
which is quite broad, but I did fail a few times to see um, a certain species I really, really wanted to see. And I was frustrated about that, but then I realised actually I saw their environment and I still got a really good understanding of them as a species and their life. And also it's kind of a tall order to expect to see a very rare animal when I only had like a day or two to to spot them. Um, So it's managing those expectations and realising that nature doesn't want to be found and it's a real privilege when you can see it. Um, again, I learned that there's actually amazing stuff happening in the UK that's really worth shouting about. Project Seagrass and seeing and learning about seagrass restoration was insane. And to see some of the students who are doing projects behind its restoration was really cool. Um, I learned that climate change isn't always a bad thing for some species. So we like to think climate change equals death. (laughs) But actually, it can work in so many nuanced ways that I didn't understand before. It's not just like extreme weather or rain or temperatures and wildfire and big kind of flashy things. It can be very quiet and covert and unassuming. But for some species like the grey-long-eared bat, which is the rarest bat in Britain, um, it can not necessarily be a bad thing because it can the warming British climate can make it a bit more hospitable and so lots of populations of the grey longer bat reside in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain and so they're actually a bit of a Mediterranean bat down there but if our climate becomes a little bit more like that it could make this bat feel more inclined to return to our shores um So, yeah, climate change can open opportunities for species that haven't had those opportunities in many, many years. And so I think it's it's not putting it into a box. Humans love to put things in a box. Um, And so realising how incredibly interconnected everything is um, and how if you just remove one piece of the puzzle, you've actually got very little idea as to what you've done. (laughs) Uh, But that sort of those impacts can crop up in different ways. So, yeah learn lots of things constantly learning (laughs) but that raises a really interesting question and point I think around you know I I recognize my naivety and I'm happy for you to get grumpy with me or others to get grumpy (laughs) with me on email but whenever anybody says we're facing the sixth mass extinction they say it in like a really negative way and I get that that's bad I I understand Mm. why that's bad but there's also a part of me that thinks well hang on we had five before And lots of things disappeared and that's not good. But Mm. surely this means that this is in some way recoverable. So yes, we're going to lose a lot. I'm not disputing the fact that that's awful. But Mm. what happens next doesn't necessarily mean it's just us, dogs and cats. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think people just, again, because we're selfish, assume that it's the end of us. But it would, I think an extinction, unfortunately, just means a changing of the guard, really in terms of the order of play so I think I think again if we're trying to look to reduce feelings of eco-anxiety and catastrophizing it's stop catastrophizing and just be a bit more practical and think okay well before I start assuming things let's take a step back go outside, revisit some information from a reliable source and chat to people about it and 
I think not worry. Worrying is such a panicky emotion. It's very fight or flight. We can do very good work in short bursts under fight or flight, but it's not a sustainable long-term feeling and that can really grind you down. It's, again, not to sound gaggy, but joy and humour and um, positivity is a much more sustainable emotion. I remember I was chatting to someone recently, a bit of a tangent, however, um, you see people around the world and throughout life who have had the most unimaginable hardship and grief and challenge, whether it's physical, loss, um, whatever. Some of those people I've met who have had the worst things you can imagine happen to them are also the most positive and the most cheerful. And they're not spending every day doom and gloom, woe is me, poor me, my life's over. On the whole, they are incredibly positive. And you see when you watch things like sport relief or comet relief, children in Africa who have nothing, who are starving, and yet they can't stop smiling. And whether that's a factor, you have to look at the context of they're excited because they're filming maybe and it's all sort of, there's lots of novelty there. But then also I've heard that firsthand from people who have spent time in schools in Africa. My brother's a doctor. He did his elective in Zambia. And similar stories of people who have nothing and yet they are so content. And so how what can we learn there when we're worried about stuff and we're feeling like everything is going wrong? The power of positivity can't be underestimated, I think, if used appropriately. Yeah, and maybe to, to, to bolt onto that, like almost the power of purpose, I think that's... Yeah, 100%. Because I think apathy is one of the greatest threats with all this, not just in terms of what we're mm. facing, but to ourselves. You know, there's so much purpose to be found in Definitely. being part of a, let's just call yeah. it, you know, a revolution. Um yeah. And I think it ties so well with adventure. I've always, the, one of the reasons why I've loved expedition is because it's felt purposeful and I felt so driven in the in the pursuit of what I wanted, uh, of whatever it was, whether it was a destination, a time, just uh, the fact I was doing it solo, whatever. But to be purposeful, as you say, is, is so important, I think. Yeah. So I'm conscious of time. Um, we'll yeah. wrap it up. <laughs> I um, I always ask people the same two questions at the end of every episode. The first is, what scares you? Ooh, uh, I'm going to steal your answer. I think apathy scares me. There you go. What brings you hope? Um, ooh, brings me hope. Um... I think conversations like this, but I think things at the moment, if I can give a specific example of something that's really bringing me hope is the right to roam movement. That is so exciting. And it's so, it's just so cool because, you know, to see them at Glastonbury and to see them breaking down barriers and crossing genres and, galvanizing incredible support and communicating it so well um 
is is super 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 exciting and they're so brave and courageous but they're going about it in such a a brilliant effective way that is actually producing results and so that is really bringing me hope because I think if something like that that is sowing so many seeds and so many millions of people's brains as to a better future alongside nature and to remind people of their autonomy I think there's there's something really really hopeful in that so that's a specific thing that is inspiring me giving me hope brilliant we'll leave it there thank you so much thank you for having me Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes.